Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Covers. Let's talk about them. A few years ago, I walked into a bar in downtown Austin on a Saturday night with a couple of friends. A local band was playing. No surprise there, uh, that's pretty much why anyone who doesn't live in Austin walks into a bar in downtown Austin on a Saturday night. It was unnaturally loud in there. Carrying on a conversation with strangers was pointless. There was one thing I heard very clearly and joyfully, however. This band which seemed to be playing mostly country and classic rock covers and perhaps a couple of tunes that may have been original, suddenly busted out an interlude of Lil Jon's Get Low. Yes, the whitest people you know instantly frenzied its gathering into shouting that swinging refrain, Ah, skeet, skeet, motherfucker, ah, ah, skeet, ah, damn. That was an immediate and wonderful entry into the cover band Hall of Fame. So, why do no-name bands play tricks like that Lil John one? Because it's fun. Duh. That is rock and roll right there. Party and piss them all off. I mean, why is it that every other time I walked into a bar here in the United States, the band on stage plays a cover of Tom Petty's Mary Jane's Last Dance? Because it's an amazing song most people with brain cells and ears enjoy singing along to while drinking beer. It is all about the experience. Very rarely is our interaction with cover tunes about the artist's interpretation. What if it is, though? Then we begin to graduate to something special. Here's another indelible concert-going moment for me, and for that matter, for Arturo. Slater Kinney, perhaps the best female rock band that has ever existed, blasted through Creedence Clearwater Revival's Fortunate Son during the encore of its May 23, 2000 performance at Irving Plaza in New York. It was a daring choice from the vault, a yowl of Vietnam-era outrage against privilege and power through the eyes of a young man bashed out with an intense nihilism by three young college-town Gen X women. Corin Tucker definitely wasn't no fortunate son, and she channeled a feminist rage into her vocals, This was a subversive feat, one that actually didn't dawn on me until a few days later. Okay, so that was special. But there's a level of special that goes even beyond Slater Kinney and Fortunate Son. What if the cover becomes the definitive statement in your mind? Or in the culture's mind? This has famously happened on stage, captured for eternity on live albums and concert specials. Think of The Who absolutely destroying in the best way possible, Mose Allison's lightweight piano-driven 1957 shaker, Young Man's Blues. Some artists love a song so much and explore it so deeply 
that it follows them into the studio and shifts sound, shape, color, and occasionally reality as it travels from rehearsal to recording. Have you heard Black Sabbath's theatrical metal ballad from 1972 uh, called Changes? Have you also heard late dole singer Charles Bradley's 2016 covers of Changes 2? Then you have officially unheard the original Sabbath rendition, and you will never need to hear it again. Bradley's take is that good. Now that sets us up for this episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Arturo and myself, Chris O'Connor, uh, we will be counting down our choices for the 30 greatest rock cover songs of all time. Here were the criteria we used to come up with this list. First, each song on this list is either a rock and roll song or of another genre covered by an artist of unmistakably rock and roll disposition. Second, each cover version we feature was released after the original version. That knocks out more contenders than you'd think, hence why we won't be covering Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. Third, and most importantly, the cover version of the song became the absolute definitive version of that song. It is either the only version most of us know, or it is the version most aligned with a cultural zeitgeist. Take, for example, Joe Cocker and the Wonder Years. We'll just let you sing the rest. Others have dared to assemble a list like ours over the years, but we think the list you are about to encounter will reign supreme in your mind by episode's end. It'll certainly have more balls. And with that, we welcome you into the corridors of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. The curmudgeons are really, truly your best source for uh, this kind of rock talk and uh, ridiculous banter. Uh, We're professionals, but in the bedroom sense, that makes us awesome. Covers in the bedroom sense. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) yeah i know it's like yeah we're yeah let's get it on is not going to be on this list how uh however marvin gay is covers 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 and more covers anyway uh you know they have covers over in that uh other side of the space-time continuum right yes they do do they i didn't know that yes the parallel universe has its own covers which are sharper and crisper and are, are all hits and they're all done by rock bands who are still uh, relevant uh, to this day and are up on the grand stage uh, making asses of themselves at the Grammys. So, <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Parallel Universe. Basically, this is our shtick where we uh, cover new or new-ish records. Uh, new as in a very recent vintage. New-ish is we can go back as far as a decade. Uh, there is a vault of treasures uh, that go back to uh, the most recent era uh, here that we cover. Actually, this album came out last year. Oh, it did. Came came on summer of last year. Oh, okay. They're a a band called Automatic, and the name of the album is Excess. They come from Los Angeles. Automatic are a trio that can be best described as fuzzy, lo-fi, yet sultry and seductive synth pop with irresistible earworm hooks and melodies. Their latest album, like I said, came out last year, came out three years after their 2019 debut, Signals, also a very good album. Now, retro 80s synth pop is a field that has been, to put it very mildly, exhaustively mined by indie rock artists for nearly the past two decades to annoyingly homogenous effect. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. 
you know, what separates Automatic from the pack of, of same sounding synth pop revivalists is that Automatic employs a drummer and a bassist that actually sound like a drummer and a bassist on record, not something overly processed to Pro Tools lifelessness. Or, this, or drum machines and, you know. Right, and, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, this this rhythm combination grounds and adds warmth to uh, Izzy Glaudini's synth keyboard washes that can alternate between soothing and abrasive, sleek and jagged, and menacing and inviting. Imagine if New Order had maintained Joy Division's darkness and augmented it with the glorious, balming quality of the rhythms of the German band Neu. Standout tracks for all you non-album listening youngsters, On the Edge, Venus Hour, and Turn Away. Chris? What I like about this record is that it is not a gimmick. It is not shtick. Uh, it is not reverent and or nostalgic. If I think it's kind of a brilliant choice that if you're going to do an album about a soulless, lifeless, corporatist future, yeah, to make it as icy and as uh, detached and as uh, indicative of that mood and of that, mm. um, it's not melancholy. That's not the re- the right. word I'm really looking for, but it's that sort of uh, resignation and uh, <sighs> acknowledgement that the robots may be taking over at some yeah. point. Yeah. And so it's the lyrics and the themes and the concepts that dictate the sound. Mm. Uh, that fascinates me. Right. Uh, it's worth pointing out, uh, coincidentally, two things. You know, one, it's interesting that we mentioned the Germans stay tuned. Uh, that's a subject that we will be uh, studying in depth, considering it keeps coming ov- up over and over and over again with new yeah. bands these days. Yeah. Uh, so there, that's one point. And then two, this is uh, something that has become really fascinating to me over the last couple of years. There are so many young women uh, bands and artists in the Los Angeles area are really, really good. I mean, a lot of really good bands and a lot of uh, good uh, music from female artists yeah, uh, you, coming you, out you of LA. LA Witch who are pretty good, even though they're a little bit derivative of the Jesus and Mary chain. But I also yeah. like Bleached a lot. Yeah, Bleached, Bleached is, great. is really good. Uh, Death Valley Girls, they just came out with an album. Oh, I, yeah, they're great. I, I haven't listened to it yet, but. Yeah. And you know that I like Grace Ives. I mean, she was like in my top 10 uh, mm. last year. And, you know, she, you know, as far as like, you know, bedroom electronic uh, pop goes, uh, that was very, very good. So that's all LA. And so this is, this is a thing now. Yeah. Uh, so be on the lookout for these young female bands, uh, all really good, uh, all really smart. Now we go from LA uh, back to the UK. And I like this album, uh, you know, Arturo and I, because we go back 30 years, like literally 30 years, uh, can get a little in-jokey sometimes. Mm. And so uh, this one, I could see us back, like when we roomed in Astoria a few years later, like this, these sort of like, you know, weird exercises of like, what if this person was in this band and was, and this person was the singer? Yeah. And so while I think it's a great album on its own, it, it answers the question that everybody might in their brother might've had, uh, at one time in their weird life. Uh, what if REM or the Sundays were fronted by Richard and Linda Thompson, <laughs> uh, you know? And so it's, it's a strange listen. So this is uh, the tubs is the name of this band. And the name of the album is dead meat. Uh, it came out uh, this past January. 
Uh, and like I said, it's a very, very strong record, uh, really uh, tight uh, pop songwriting. And uh, it it's fun, but it's also got, you know, an emotional range and some uh, also some socio-political uh, uh, commentary uh, in there uh, as well. But again, it's a real singer. It's a, the guy sounds exactly like Richard Thompson. And weirdly enough, a couple of these songs and a couple of these hooks sound like they could have been on a couple of those Thompson records from the late 70s, mm. uh, you know, that you know, that they kind of did on the cheap, but also has some like hidden gems in them, you know. So yeah. uh, it's it. So there's that. So the album opener, here's here's the weird part, though, is you listen to it and the uh, album opener is a song called Illusion uh, Part Two. And in the first 38 seconds, you're when we listen to it or when I listen to it, I'm saying, oh, shit, this, they sound like dry cleaning. I hate dry cleaning. <laughs> uh, the, the, the band dry cleaning, not, you know, dry cleaning, but, uh, yeah, the band, uh, you know, and, you know, Arturo and I are in agreement that they're way overrated because that lazy lead speak singer girl, uh, or woman just, ah, you know, ch- yeah, nails it, on it's, a it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just a spoken word, abstract gibberish. And I, yeah. I, I still don't know what she adds to the band. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so you get through those first 38 seconds where there's a little bit of like speak, you know, kind of speak singer speak, you know, poetry thing from the lead. Uh, dude. And then all of a sudden it turns into this really lovely, uh, like I said, reverent pop song uh, from the eighties college days. I think that the, uh, the edgiest song on the record, I think the best song on the record comes in the middle of it. It's called Sniveller. And it's a little bit different than the rest of the album. There's, there's an even tighter, stronger uh, energy that really kind of derives almost not necessarily Husker do, but it's more Minneapolis in its, in its sharpness. And it's just, and then it segues into this really, really lovely uh, harmony. And that's where all of a sudden Linda Thompson comes in. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I don't care what these people's names are. I'm just going to call them Richard and Linda. Right. Yeah. Cause that's, but it's a really cool listen. And it's one of the better albums that I probably will hear all year. And, you know, if you love like strong pop hooks and, you know, that kind of passionate singing, basically, if you like, if you like Richard Thompson and R.E.M., you're going to like this record, right, Art? To me, this album is just one big meh. I mean, basically, it's retro 1980s UK indie jangle pop. Imagine, it, it, it just sounds like this is like a, a couple of kids, and we can call them kids, a couple of kids who heard Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever and decided, you know what? Let's reproduce that with Richard Thompson on vocals. Hey, it's Chris. Uh, Yours truly curmudgeons record the curmudgeon rock report using a program called Zencaster. And we have used uh, this program since we launched a little over two years ago. And much like we have evolved, so has Zencaster. The company was essentially in early startup mode at the time. And, you know, there have been bugs and annoyances along the way, but one thing has remained consistent, the quality and the value for us of the product itself. You see, Zencaster records the tracks of a podcast's participants natively. That means our recording session itself is never subject to the inherent unpredictability of the cloud or the inevitable half-assness that some all-in-one podcasting platforms will have across their functions. Most importantly, since I am in Houston and Arturo is in South Korea, 
reliable recordings, and excellent capture of our Ars Technica USB microphones is absolutely essential. So here we are now in 2023, 50-something episodes into this curmudgeonly journey. And here Zencaster remains. The company just switched from a credits model to a subscription model. Zencaster, we believe, is headed for big things, and we strongly suggest that you use it to record your own podcast. We now return to our regularly scheduled program. Rock on. So, here we are, folks. The definitive, because the curmudgeons fucking said so, the definitive <laughs> list of the 30 greatest rock covers of all freaking time. We're going to start, we're going to do it in three parts, 30 to 21, 20 to 11, 10 to 1. We're counting down. Number 30, Chris, who is it? Okay, Urge Overkills, girl, you'll be a woman soon. Yep. Uh, so like we said, uh, the idea here is that these covers are either better or more culturally essential uh, that in, in a way that they've kind of replaced the originals in our mind. Uh, this is one of the most vivid cases of that on this entire list. Uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon was a uh, modest, I think, hit for Neil Diamond uh, back in, you know, Neil Diamond's heyday there, uh, you know, in the border between the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Well, Urge Overkill, which uh, they were a band from Chicago, and they had a moment in the sun uh, briefly in 1993 and 94. This is from Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. and we'll get into that in a second. But uh, two guys named Nash Cato and King Riser, mm -hmm. uh, they were from uh, Chicago. And uh, they had uh, a brief uh, run of success right as we, the you and I, Arturo, started yeah. college in 93 yeah. uh, with a, a nice single called Sister Havana. So they, they kind of were similar to another uh, band from Chicago that actually broke out the exact same times, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, very sort of reverent to 70s, uh, part cocaine, part acid uh, rock, mm. you know, that kind of like yeah. Boston, but you know, urge kill urge overkill was a little bit more sci-fi uh, than that. And maybe they would have been a bigger deal if it hadn't have been for smashing pumpkins because smashing pumpkins was what, like 15 times better Yeah, <laughs> uh, overall. And this was a good band. I mean, I actually liked them for the, the, the stretch, but anyway, they do a cover of girl, you'll be a woman soon. And lo and behold, it shows up in the movie Pulp Fiction uh, at a critical moment where Mia Wallace Mm. And Vincent Vega come back from a date and Mia Wallace accidentally snorts a line of heroin mm. uh, that she had stolen from uh, Mr. Vega and ODs. But she dances around to this song uh, right before she does that. And so that becomes so indelible that it will bake into your mind. And also it's a great cover. It's, uh, it's got the same kind of romanticism, but it's... Like it's a little bit louder, a little bit more urgent and a little hornier than Neil's. Mm, yeah. So there you go. Anyway, so who are we talking about at 29 there, sir? Number 29, it's the Eagles and their version of Tom Waits's old 55. Now file this under fuck all you Eagles haters out there. Yes. <laughs> yes. We purposely put this song in there, but we, I really do believe, and I think Chris does too, that this is better than the Tom Waits original. Listen, sure, I love me some Tom Waits. I'm a big Waits fan, but as far as I'm concerned, Tom Waits begins in the early 1980s because his 70s music really is not that good. It's a lot of just overblown cocktail lounge music, 
a lot of faux, pretentious, you know, uh, beatnik poetry bullshit. And a lot of those records kind of like do that. It wasn't until Tom Waits got avant-garde and, uh, and, and kind of went out there to the fringes that his music really improved. However, on his 1973 debut album, Closing Time, there is one beautiful nugget of a song called Old 55 that the Eagles took and just made it soar to the heavens. Glenn Fry's vocals are among the best vocals he ever laid on any Eagles song. Henley compliments him perfectly. The harmonies that the, all the Eagles do on this record just really, I mean, and I love Tom Waits, but they kind of blow away Waits' old croak um, on this version. It's just, a, yeah. they, they take Tom Waits' lament about escaping from some horrible crime. The crime is insinuated in this song and is yeah. getting away from there. And you know, the sun is rising up. I'm, I'm getting out of here and, I'm riding yep. with Lady Luck because I'm going to need it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm getting, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting the fuck out of town. Yeah. Getting the fuck out of town. And the Eagles make it a heroic song. Only the Eagles could have taken this. And of course, remember, the Eagles, they fashioned themselves as outlaws themselves. Yeah, so. that's the thing. You got to remember, this was, uh, this came out in, uh, you know, after, right after they had done the Desperado record. Yeah. You know, this was, yeah. uh, I think, a year uh, later. Right. And so they were still in that mindset. And uh, Fry actually had a beat on this song before Waits' version was released. I guess he had gotten access to the demo right. uh, that, that Waits sold uh, before then. And so that's, I think, why you can say that this was polished. Basically, you know, Waits' version, like you said, this was before he uh, went the dramaturge uh, Berhold Brecht yeah. uh, route with his, right. you know, sort of, like you said, that that uh, dramatist uh, over-the-top style that he adopted that brilliantly. Uh, in the eighties. And so it's just like this sort of straightforward piano bar lament song that he does just kind of subdued, but the Eagles take it and it's everything that was great about the Eagles version 1.0. Yeah. And so it's got that warmth. Uh, You get that pedal steel guitar by Bernie Leiden, which, you know, adds depth. Right. And you have uh, the harmony vocals where uh, Randy Meisner's finest moment besides take it to the limit. Right. I think is on this song because man, these, these harmonies just soar. And it also, I think it, it underscores the musical partnership of Henley and Fry and shows that they were, uh, how, you know, their chemistry together was so strong, not just as songwriters, but in manning a song like this, it's one of the few songs, if not maybe the only song where each gets a vocal, a lead vocal part. Yeah. As far as I know, it's the only one that's coming to mind where both of them, uh, have a lead vocal part. So, uh, yeah, this is, this, this is a, uh, very, very, very orthodox Eagles, uh, version 1.0 arrangement and song. It's just lovely. Yeah. All right. So now 28, one of my all time favorite bands, one of Chris's all time favorite bands, REM. Yes, they wrote their originals, but they made some great covers too. And this is their version of the garage rock obscure as shit garage rock song, Superman. Right, Chris? Exactly. Well, it was obscure up until 1986. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. When uh, R.E.M. Uh, ended uh, their uh, brilliant album, Life's Rich Pageant, uh, with this uh, this song. So this is uh, by The Click. Uh, this is a song that was re- originally released as a B-side mm. in 1969. It's a strange, it's got a lo-fi, garagey quality to it with, you know, garagey guitars, but it's got prettier than it has a right to be harmony vocals. 
It's got some weird piano stuff going on. And, and then by the end of the song, it just sort of breaks out into this sort of really sunny, really sweet, but really kind of warbly, weird, uh, psychedelic effect. Uh, and so it's really, I guess it's a love song. Uh, <laughs> kind of a and, creepy love song. Like, you're yeah, not it's, getting away, yeah. girl. I'm going to get you. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a creepy love song. The original version is creepier because they make it sound like it's like the most like heartfelt ballad, you know, first dance marriage yeah. Yeah. Uh, song possible from a bunch of, you know, stoned out hippies in 1969. Yeah. So R.E.M. takes it and, uh, you know, God bless Bill Berry, because <laughs> in uh, this band's hands, it becomes desperate and urgent. And like you said, it kind of gets into that creepy stalker uh, uh, mindset, you know, mindset or whatever, because you get uh, Bill Berry sort of forcing the drums at points, you know, like way up. And then, uh, you also get, uh, Mike Mills and, uh, Michael Stipe, you know, they had their own sort of harmony style, which although was, Mike Mills is more upfront in this one. Yeah, he is. He is. And, and, you know, and they, even in some of the, the stipey uh, or like don't fall on me is an interesting example of the kind of dynamics of how they yeah. kind of go in and out uh, with each other. Right. And it's not so much lovely as it is just striking and compelling mm -hmm. and just heartfelt. Yeah. And so I think that version of there's, there's a, a sincerity on the one end and a desperation on the other that I right. think makes this just a great uh, exercise for them. And it's a perfect song for them. Yeah. To, you know, where they were as a band at the time and the kind of pop that they were producing. Yes. Uh, it was a perfect fit for that record. That album is one of their two or three best, probably. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I have it at number four, but that's a discussion for another time. Okay. It is. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> yes. Uh, number 27, Leonard Skinnerd and their version of the J.J. Kale song, Call Me the Breeze comes from their 1974 album, Second Helping. Now, the J.J. Kale version is, like most J.J. Kale songs, laid back, swampy blues rock, you know, you know, oh, chilled out, oaky, smoking a joint, you know, call yep. me the breeze, baby. In Leonard Skinner's hand, it's it's in their hands, it becomes honky-tonk bravado is what I yep. would call it. A blazing guitar solo, blazing piano solo, Horn section just ramped up to the max. And of course, you know, Ronnie Van Zant and his blustery vocals, it just makes it sound like Leonard Skinnerd. And it yeah. is probably the best song. They they did quite a few covers. It's the best song they ever covered. It overwhelms JJ Kale's version by quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it became a classic rock staple for a reason. It's one of one of the best tracks Skinnerd ever recorded period, original or cover. And by the way, RIP Gary Rossington, who uh, the, the last original member of the band. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. RIP Gary Rossington. You, you know, we can't let him off the hook anymore for going full Patriot because, you know, <laughs> you know, at least when Rossington or like, you know, Billy Powell were still around, we could say, Hey, but you know, these are the remnants of this great fucking band. Uh, you're right. This is, this song is Skinner showing off. Yeah. And it's a fun song and it allows uh, Alan Collins to just absolutely rock the fuck out, uh, you know, in terms of the, the solo his brains out. Yeah. It allows Billy Powell to solo his brains out. And then obviously the horns come in and you're just like, okay, well, this is just reaching ridiculous heights now. Yeah. You know? And so you're right. It's a staple for a reason because it's so much fun. 
Speaking of Southern rock, number 26, what is it, Chris? So this is the song that defined Lucinda Williams' 1998 masterpiece, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, but it's also the only song on the record she didn't write. Yeah. uh, Which is, to me, kind of amazing. So this song, it's Can't Let Go. Uh, Mm -hmm. The original version of this song, well, we talked a little bit about those uh, nameless bar bands uh, at the beginning uh, of this episode. So this was a guy named Randy Weeks who was based in Los Angeles. Uh, and he did this song in 1989 and the original arrangement of this song, which again is a, a song about obsession. Uh, it's got the most bar band arrangement imaginable to the point where you would think it was originally in the movie Roadhouse. <laughs> which isn't really a compliment. It's not a very good film, Chris. Well, hey, no, Ro- Roadhouse is the Citizen Kane of terrible movies. Uh, I, I enjoy it. It It's not a good movie, but it is enjoyable as hell. Anyway, it's the kind of thing you would expect to be there. In Lucinda Williams's hand, uh, hands, it becomes just this amazing, searing, uh, just, you know, the, the desperation, the anger, the whatever you want to call it, mm. uh, the edge. I mean, it's almost like, they cut the tape with a razor blade or somehow like uh, this was produced by a razor blade, which I guess in a way makes sense because it was co-produced by Steve Earle. Yeah. Uh, And later uh, Roy Bitten of uh, E street band fame added some overdubs. And so, you know, you've got everything in here. You've got, you know, you've got like nasty slide guitar, you've got uh, Lucinda Williams, you know, those, those kind of, you know, smoky, just awesome, sexy vocals yeah uh this sort of skittering uh, drum it's it's sped up it's both quiet and loud yeah and so it just it can it's the spirit animal of that record uh and just tells you everything about lucinda williams's genius to take this uh sort of standard uh bar friendly uh, uh song about male angst yeah. And to turn it into something that defines her on record character. It's genius. Absolutely. Genius. And to be honest, uh, Arturo, I think that this should have been probably higher on the list, but I had to give you this one because I had other fights to pick. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I see the argument for this being higher. And if anything, this song itself should make people out there listen to the album Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Not only one of the greatest albums of the 90s, not only one of the best in my opinion, pure country music albums of all time. It's one of the best albums of all time, period. It's it's, it's a record that should be listened to in its entirety. It's an absolute stone cold classic. It it is arguably her best album, although she has a few others that are great, but it it should make you want to listen to the album. I I need to point out, by the way, and so this is going to be one of the themes of this uh, episode. So this entry from Lucinda Williams at number 26 is the first of five songs on this list by female artists covering songs originally done by men. Yes. And making them better or more urgent or more subversive or smarter or something. So speaking of which, number 25, number 25, Kim Deal and the Breeders in their version of Driving on Nine. Kim Deal was originally, as we all know, or should know, the, the bass player for the Pixies. And she struck out on her own because Frank Black's or Black Francis's ego wouldn't let her have any more songs on the Pixies. Right. So she yeah. said, you know what? I'm going to form my own goddamn band. And she, yep. unlike, the, unlike the Pixies, 
the Breeders actually had a hit in yes, 1993 with their all-time classic album. Seriously, Last Splash is one of, the, one of the defining alternative rock albums of the 90s. Yes. And she had a huge hit. Uh, the, they, really, she had a huge hit with a Cannonball. But yes. tucked, in, tucked in that album toward the very end, toward the end, not quite the end, is right. a cover called Driving On Nine, uh, written by Dom Leone and Steve Hickoff. Who are these guys? These guys were in an alternative folk group from Boston called Ed's Redeeming Qualities. Yes, that's their actual name. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they were generally labeled, they were generally anti-folk. Anti-folk is what Beck was a part of uh, when he briefly went to New York City and yeah. did his experimental folk stuff before he went back to LA and became Beck, Beck. as we know yeah. him. Mm-hmm. And really, um, this ver- the original version is just, you know, a lazy, kind of weird, grubby, lo-fi folk song. In Kim Deal's hands with the breeders, it becomes this beautiful, wistful, kind of a chiming country rock song. And her vocals on her are really like, they're touching and they're sweet. Kim Deal was a very underrated vocalist. Yeah, no, I agree. She she really adds, she, the band really, but the, the breeders themselves add something just lilting to this version. It's a beautiful, beautiful way for that album to end. And yeah. it's, it, it hits the mark. It's better than the original. It's the defining version. And yes, it came out after. And yes, yes. this should be on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this uh, So the original, you talked about Ed's redeeming qualities. So yeah. Dom Leone was one of the co-leaders uh, of this band. He died, I believe, of cancer mm. in 1989, mm. I believe it was. And so this is sort of a tribute to Ed's right. redeeming qualities while she's doing this. Now, the original version, it's very much in that anti-folk, uh, almost going back to the Daniel Johnston approach of clearly uh, yeah. a one-take, uh, lo-fi, who knows, mm-hmm. maybe even a tape recorder right. of uh, them singing it. Uh, and uh, you know, it's got the violin, but it's this guy singing it. It's very charming. And here's, you know, strange but true. One of the, there were two violin players in that band. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, which uh, her name was Carrie Bradley. Uh, when the Breeders did their first demo in either 89 or 90, uh, Carrie Bradley played on the demo uh, with mm-hmm. Kim Deal. And I believe Tanya Donnelly was, was, was uh, tucked in at that point because it started off as everybody's side band. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I said, you know, when Tanya Donnelly was in throwing muses, but Carrie, so Carrie Bradley plays on that. She also plays on this version. So the violinist from the original version is on this version of Driving on Nine, which adds to the poignancy. And so you Mm. take this charming, almost kind of goofball male uh, uh, sort of, you know, road romance kind of song and you put it in Kim Deal and it becomes very sweet and very poignant and uh, just very rich. And The Mandolin by Kelly Deal is also fantastic on this. And so, yeah, great, great song. Right. All right, number 24. And this is one we're going way back here. Chris, yeah. the Beach Boys. Yeah, this is probably one of the more uh, mysterious or probably the most mysterious entry on this list. And so uh, on Pet Sounds, a, lo- a lot of folks on uh, th- who are listening to this podcast will revere uh, Pet Sounds as much as we do. We're pretty much in agreement that that probably is one of the top 10, maybe five records ever made. Maybe three. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was. I think it was on number two. 
yeah. on a like several recent <laughs> greatest uh, of all time lists. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so they did this song called Sloop John B. Uh, and now Sloop John B, uh, according to the academic studies of it, uh, it has origins in the Bahamas. Mm. And it was a, it's a folk song. It's a very strummy, very Caribbean folk song about mm. uh, what amounts to uh, the worst uh, ship ride of all time. Mm. You know, storms and drunkenness and fights and all of this. And they can't wait to get off that boat. Yeah. Well, anyway, so who knows where the origins are tracked to, but it first comes into Western consciousness in like 1915 or 16, where there was a somebody out there of like a, a linguist or some sort of musicologist uh, caught onto this and uh, made a very crude rendering of it and got it published. And then in the 1920s, somebody was putting together what he called the American song bag, not song book, song bag, mm. uh, and included this on this. So the first known recording of it comes from the mid 20s. Mm. Well, then what happens is, is that the Kingston Trio, you know, you remember if you've ever seen uh, the movie yeah. A Mighty Wind. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. spoofing the Kingston Trio. <laughs> yeah, basically they're goofing on uh, the folk revival of the late 50s and early 60s. Well, the Kingston Trio, uh, un you know, they unbury this song, Sloop John B, and they include a very orthodox folk, you know, acoustic, you know, happy-go-lucky version of Sloop John B on an album in 1958 becomes a hit. Well, Al Jardine, uh, who is a member of the Beach Boys, uh, he's like the only guy in the band that wasn't related to anybody else. He's just, <laughs> you know, everybody's buddy. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was the folk uh, music enthusiast of everybody in the band, and he brings it to Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson's like, meh. And so Jardine plays around with the uh, with some of the with the structure. He twists and bends a few notes and a few keys, and he kind of you know does some subtle things with the changes and the chords and all of that. And he gets it into a Beach Boys idiom. Mm. And Brian's like, "Okay, I can run with that." And it becomes one of the more masterful arrangement jobs on the entire record. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, everybody will will recognize those chimes. Uh, everybody will recognize, you know, the, that, that harmony, which right. is, you know, one of the best, better, it's one of, obviously it's not the best, uh, harmony performance by Brian Wilson on that record, but it's close. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's up there with, wouldn't it be nice, yeah. uh, for sure. And so there you go, folks, the, uh, Bahamas folk, uh, somehow travels from, uh, the, uh, the academic eggheads to, uh, Brian Wilson as he's in the middle of melting down quite yeah. a story. Yeah, and also the key moment of this song, and Mike Love does the the lead vocals here. Yes, the key, the key moment is like toward the end of the toward the end of the song. It has a break, and Mike Love says, "This is the worst trip I, we've ever been on." Remember, this album came out in 1966. Tripping yeah. had a different meaning back then. Number 23, Led Zeppelin and their version of Willie Dixon's "I Can't Quit You, Baby." Now, here's the thing: throughout those first two Led Zeppelin albums. They are stealing a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> they, yeah. They stole a lot from Robert Johnson. They stole from Muddy. They st and, and, and they did not give credit. They just planted, yep. okay, planting, uh, planting Page wrote this, and they stole a lot of riffs, melodies. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. the, the big hit from Led Zeppelin II, Whole Lot of Love. The, the Not only the lyrics, but the vocal melody taken from a Small Faces song, Hello, yep. Steve Marriott. Yep. However, there's one song that they just could not 
the, in good conscience, they could not put the plant page songwriting credit on because it's, it's a direct cover and it's the yeah. only one that is a direct cover and it's I Can't Quit You Babe, Baby from Led Zeppelin 1. So basically, if you've heard the Willie Dixon original, which uh, you should hear, it's really good, but it's kind of a breezy, sashaying, you know, pleasant blues tune. In Led Zeppelin's hands, it is powerful. Oh yeah, that Bonham drum, that that those crazy Jimmy Page guitar passages, and his soloing, and of course, young Robert Plant just like was untouchable as a vocalist uh, during yeah. this time. It's it's it is the definitive version, and I think even Willie Dixon, when he was alive, if you give him a few, if you if you had given him a few shots of whiskey and asked him the truth, he probably would have said, "Yeah, those white boys outdid me." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a power to the song. Uh, yeah. All hail John Paul Jones too, because he has a, sure. a hell of a bass pocket in this version sure. as well. Sure. And so it's a blast. Now the original version is very, very Chicago. <laughs> yes, uh, performance. Uh, the funny story there is that Willie Dixon wrote this song for Otis Rush, mm. and Otis Rush, uh, another blues man from uh, the Chicago uh, blues scene. Yeah, uh, R- Rush was having problems uh, dumping his mistress. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, my wife's on to me. I have to behave, but oh shit, I can't quit you, babe. All right, next number twenty-two. This is Pearl Jam and their version of Vic- the the folk singer Victoria Williams' song "Crazy Mary." Chris, take it. Gotcha. Uh, so uh, this version of uh, "Crazy Mary" by Pearl Jam, it was an inclusion on uh, a benefit uh, compilation record called "Sweet Relief." Mm-hmm. And Sweet Relief, by the way, is still going as far as I as far as I know. Oh, really? So Sweet Relief is an organization that actually Victoria Williams formed. Now, Victoria Williams's story, uh, she was married to one of the founders of the Jayhawks, mm. and would occasionally show up on Jayhawks records as a as a vocalist or a backup vocalist. But she had her own uh, folk uh, rock or basically folk rock uh, career. And she had done uh, this song uh, called Crazy Mary. She was very croaky, by the way. You know, she had a very croaky voice uh, from what I remember. It wasn't, it wasn't all, it's a lovely song, but her version wasn't all that lovely. Well, what ended up happening is around like 1990 or so, Victoria Williams was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And like a lot of music artists and a lot of artists, period, didn't have health insurance. Right. And so Sweet Relief was a, the idea was here's a benefit uh, record and all of the proceeds of it will go towards her care. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was kind of the concept. So Pearl Jam steps in and does this absolutely lovely version of Crazy Mary, which and it just fit where Pearl Jam was at at, the, at that point. It was like almost like Eddie Vedder and uh, Victoria Williams. It was almost like a portal between their two minds Yeah, in some ways because it, the kind of uh, – melodic vocabulary that Vetter was dabbling in, in that period. This is when verses came out. It was around the same time. Yeah. Uh, and it really just defines wonderfully, you know, also beautiful guitar playing by, uh, McCready. It's, yeah. you know, just beautiful acoustic, uh, soloing and just, just really, really just lovely. And Victoria Williams is on there as, as a backup vocalist too. Sure. So there's yeah. just some lovely, lovely harmonies. So 
one of those sort of defining offshoots. It seems like a lot of those bands, remember back then where you had stuff like No Alternative and Sweet Relief? Yeah. And it seems like and everybody had a benefit record for something. Right. And right. this is Pearl Jam's inclusion. Uh, for what it's worth, a few years later, Sweet Relief also did a uh, tribute album for Vic Chestnut. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, who had been paralyzed, I think, believe in a car accident. Right. Uh, so another wonderful uh, folk uh, songwriter. Uh, he was from Georgia. And so, yeah, so there you go. Uh, a little bit of charity to pump <laughs> into this list. And now, speaking of charity, <laughs> uh, the Who are very, very giving in their covers. And in our number 21 is the Who and their version of Eddie Cochran, 1950s rocker Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues the live version from 1970s Live at Leeds album, arguably the greatest live rock album of all time. Yeah. Now, Chris, you mentioned once that every version of every song on the Who's Live at Leeds is the best version. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> that, that's just mar- it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous record. Yeah. So we, we got to choose one. We choose Summertime Blues. This version, this song was done in 1968 by the San Francisco hard rock band Blue Cheer. Blue Cheer were a big touchstone influence on Rush, actually. And their version is really, 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 really good. But the Who's version, the live version of the Who is just, whoa, oh my God, what a walking proto metal, just like shove it down your throat. This is rock and roll moment. The Who blow this song up to proportions. Keith Moon's drumming is, well, what, exactly what you expect Keith Moon yeah, to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's Townsend doing his windmill kicks, swinging yeah, his arm. It's, it's Daltry swinging his microphone, doing the whole bravado. This song is just dynamite rock action. And with all due respect to Eddie Cochran and Blue Cheer, it blows them both out of the water. On this episode, we gave you the 30 greatest rock cover versions of all time. For the next episode, Chris and I will finally delve into a subgenre of rock that we've referenced many times on this show, whether it be the general episode topic or our parallel universe segment. That's right, we are finally tackling kraut rock. If you're offended by that term, especially if you're German, Don't worry, we understand. We prefer to call it German progressive rock from the 1970s. These were bands and artists that had an immense and immeasurable influence, not just on various forms of alternative and indie rock music from the late 1970s onward. David Bowie, Talking Heads, The Cure, Killing Joke, Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, and Radiohead, just to name a few but were also huge, undeniable touchstones on electronic music as it evolved from the middle of the 1970s to encompass ambient, synth-pop, techno, house, acid house, trip-hop, and all forms of EDM and beyond. We're going to dig deep and profile the major players and names from this fascinating period of rock, and indeed pop, music history from this most fascinating of decades and get to the bottom of why and how they were so important. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you a Kraut Rock Exploration. Yikes, there's that offensive word again. 
Okay, so now we're in the uh, second third of this list. Uh, it's a fun list. Uh, it was really great week just listening to all these songs, originals and these versions and other versions. But the versions on this list are the best. Why? Because the curmudgeons say so. Number twenty, Cream and Crossroads, which and the the famous version of Crossroads, which is actually a live version from a live album uh, from nineteen sixty eight. Well, and, it, it, it's a double album, disc one. You talk about Wheels of Fire. Disc one yeah. is studio, disc two is live. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And so, but this is the famous version, not right. the not the studio version. This is right. uh, this is Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker at their absolute finest and at their absolute coolest. I mean, you're talking about, this is one of those instances where you had a super group and it actually was a super group. Uh, yeah. you, you're talking like the best at what they do uh, in London at the time, uh, all doing their thing. And it's just this really great rumbling, uh, version of, uh, it's a Robert Johnson song. So it starts off and it dates back to the thirties. And the original is this very, very sultry, sexy, slow, uh, solo guitar, you know, sounds like, you know, it's, it's the cliche, you know, the beer commercials with the old sweaty, uh, old black guy. Yeah. Uh, playing the guitar in a in yeah. an empty bar, yeah, uh, it just has that thing. Well, uh, these guys take it and they they ramp it up and they jam it, and it is a rhythmic monster and so much energy. And perhaps uh, Clapton's best uh, performance uh, as a guitarist, as a soloist, and I would say definitely his best vocal take, wouldn't you say? Yeah, uh, oh yeah. I mean, the, there was yeah. a time when Eric Clapton was really cool, and this and this yeah. was it. <laughs> yes, and and this is him doing his best Jack uh, Bruce impression because you know, <laughs> yeah. before before we recorded this, we we established that I was getting the vocal attribution wrong. So good job, Eric, you fooled me. So <laughs> good stuff. Anything to say about uh, Crossroads? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was also like the last real Cream album, um, Wheels yeah. of Fire. Yeah, th this is a blistering, blistering live version. Uh, it, it's the reason when back in the mid '60s when he was with the Yardbirds. The whole thing, Clapton is God, was like spray painted on so on, on the wall sure. of some club somewhere. This is why people thought he was quote unquote God, is because of this kind of performance. It really oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, for what it's worth, since uh, one of our uh, missions as the Chromogen Rock Report is to educate younger minds to keep the rock and roll spirit going, uh, let us recommend uh, what my favorite Cream song, uh, Swallow Bar. <laughs> Love those lyrics. <laughs> yeah, just a weird with, with the rainbow has a beard. Uh, yeah, just a really strange but wonderful song with again, you know, Jack Bruce on vocals and these these almost Clapton playing the guitar like he thinks it's a kazoo. It's uh, <laughs> it's a really great but strange strange song. So anyway, go check it out. Swallow Bar. It's uh, spelled sort of like it sounds. Uh, the the search engines will correct the spelling. You'll go. You'll be able to find it. Anyway, number nineteen. We're number we're sticking 19. we're stick we're sticking with old school blues, old blues guys from the nineteen thirties. At number nineteen, uh, a selection that I fought very hard for: the yeah. White Stripes and their blistering version of Sun House's Death Letter. Well, it was originally Death Letter Blues. The yes. White Stripes just renamed it Death Letter from their two thousand album De Steel. Uh, and this needs to be put on there because, frankly. A uh, younger generation, not younger generation, but people like around 2000 had no idea who the hell Sun House was until the nope. White Stripes, you know, unearthed this song. Their yep. version, I said it's blistering. It is romping, stomping, ass rampaging punk blues 
to the max. They Their version is definitive. It is classic. It is epic. It builds. It has drama. Jack White adds some passion to the to the, the vote to the to the lyrics of the song about a guy who just loves this woman so much and just realizes one morning that she's dead and he has to bury her yep. <laughs> because no one else will. It is right. a, it is just, a, just move. It's moving lyrically, moving musically, powerful. It proves that yes, Meg White was not a technically brilliant drummer, but in the context of the White Stripes and what Jack, what Jack and yeah. Meg were doing, her drumming was appropriate. He guides the music so well to that breakdown uh, section in the middle, and then builds and builds and builds, goes back to the intro riff. It is just a titanic piece of blues rock, among the best ever recorded by anyone. And and, and I, I would challenge Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton to do this song better than, than the White Stripes did. Yeah, I agreed. So the White Stripes concept, uh, now a couple of months ago, we did a, a legacy episode on the White Stripes and we made the point then that uh, part of their concept was to just, let's play like we're a young boy and a young girl yeah. and we're sweet and you know we're, we're innocent and we have feelings. But the other thing was, it was a blues deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And really, I think as I've described it for 20 something years now, it's yeah. Led Zeppelin without Robert Plant or James, John Paul Jones. You know, what if it was just uh, Jimmy and John? Right. And so you got to take from DeSteel, you take you're pretty good looking for a girl and then Death Letter. And they define the White Stripes concept right there. Speaking of uh, essence and crossing ethnic boundaries, number 18 is Santana and their version of the salsa legend Tito Puentes, Oye Como Va. And you're going to talk about it, Chris, not me. (laughs) Yes, 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 I am. And so so I fought for this one over uh, Black Magic uh, Woman only because I'm a big fan of the original, uh, you know, Mm, like Peter Green at at his weirdest. So Santana... Is, is a young, impressionable uh, Mexican-American kid from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, forms a band that is about as, you know, multi-ethnic, you know, 60s put in a blender as it gets. I mean, come on, you have the, the founders of Journey uh, were in yeah. this band by the time they got to Woodstock, right? <laughs> and so, so not only is he like, we said we didn't include Black Magic Woman again, you know, only because I think that this is more indicative of what Santana was about, his range right. and his soul. And this is more, I think, closer to his heritage. And so the idea that, you know, Santana could do acid rock and he could do, you know, London blues, but he could also. Uh, Salsa. <laughs> yeah, he could out Tito Puente, uh, Tito Puente in a lot of ways. And so just this sort of spiritual, it's Santana doing his, this that gorgeous lead guitars. He. You know, there's other, I think, technical, there's other guitarists out there who are more mighty, Mm. but Santana's solos were just routinely just beautiful. They were were emotional and they were lyrical. That's that's the key word for Santana. Yes, lyrical. Yes. Uh, Just beautiful, almost like a poetry uh, to the way he played. And I think it comes out really, really well uh, on this song, but it also speaks to Santana, the band. That yeah. Santana, the band, they were just a fun band with all those arrangements with the percussions mm-hmm. and the organs mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, the way that they could ramp stuff up. And also, you know, like the, the, uh, the backup singing and, and all of that. I mean, basically you can hear, uh, Ozo, what was the name of the band? Ozo Motley. Yes. Uh, you can hear them coming to life in this song. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I love it. It's, it's got, it's like, it's like an electrified partyfied, uh, stonerfied version of Tito's song. And it really does honor <laughs> justice to Tito. Number 17, the man would, we named this podcast after one of his songs. Number 17, Nirvana and their version of the Vaseline's Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam from the MTV Unplugged live session. Now, the Vaseline's were a Scottish indie rock band of the 1980s. Their whole thing was subversion. It was a, it was a boy-girl band. The girl sang all the raunchy, sleazy sex songs. The boy sang all the sweet little <laughs> lovely-dovey pop songs. And they were noisy rock, but with like really bubblegum pop melodies. And that was why Kurt Cobain loved them so much. Uh, one of the several covers they did on the MTV Unplugged was the Vaseline's Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, which is a really just very unlike most of what the Vaseline's did. It's actually kind of this yearning, beautiful song about kind of rejecting religion. Yeah. And in Nirvana's hands, they they make it into a hymn. It's very hymnal, yeah. the way yes. Nirvana did it unplugged. There's so many great covers on this. I had to choose one. I went, we yeah. went with this one. I think it's it's one of the gorgeous, one of many gorgeous moving moments on the single greatest MTV unplugged session ever made and recorded. Oh yeah, recorded in one take, which is yeah. like I think one of the only ones that ever happened with. Right. So I'll confess, this is my least favorite of the cover versions on that record. Really? Um well yeah, yeah. you get the lead belly. And we didn't put Nirvana's version of Lead Belly's, uh, but you know, the Lead Belly version is fantastic. It's yeah, hard but, to say Nirvana's version is better. Right. But Mark Lanigan's version is a lot better than that one, too. Uh, mm. Curiously enough, Kurt Cobain sang backup on Lanigan's uh, version right, right. <laughs> from 1990. Right. Number 16, another special record by another baby boomer classic rock band, Chris. Yep. Yeah, this is another one of those instances where somebody else's work kind of defines the aesthetic and becomes the spirit animal for another band. Now, mm. you know, Creens Clearwater Revival is a band from the Bay Area that sounded like they might as well have been from like the swamps of Louisiana. Mm, yeah. And that was kind of their thing. It was an Americana, uh, really, uh, you know, John Fogarty could translate that, uh, that regional sound and feel for a modern age and within what a two year period makes four of the best, uh, pure classic rock albums imaginable. Yeah. Uh, and made the case for maybe the greatest American rock band of all time. Yeah, uh, arguably, arguably, ar arguably. Yeah. You could, you could make a case for Creed's Creed Clearwater revival being the best band in American history and their version of Susie Q, uh, which was originally a hit by a guy named Dale Hawkins, uh, one hit wonder guy from the late fifties uh, was more sort of rockabilly, more sort of uh, almost like a country stompish uh, uh, version. But what Credence does is they kind of strip it down and it's, it's, you know, Fogarty and his uh, very sort of uh, fuzzed out uh, garagey. Uh, what would you call it? I mean, I don't know. He just had this sort of C deep. Well, CCR, it, it was, it was swampy, dirty, yeah. mangy Southern rock. Arguably, yeah. were, I mean, the irony of CCR is that they were from Oakland to California, but they arguably right. invented Southern rock. Number 15, 
Mick and Keith show up, the Rolling Stones, and their version of The Temptations, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Now, and this this version is from their 1974 album, It's Only Rock and Roll, which we are both huge fans of. Very underrated. Probably the most most underrated album in the Stones catalog. But anyway. By by a mile. I digress. Um, This album, this song, sorry, I should say, Again, by, by the Temptations, the Rolling Stones, when they started out in the early 60s, they got their reputation as being a covers band. They were primarily a covers band. They were a blues and rhythm and blues covers band. By 1965, they were kind of writing, Mick and Keith were writing their own songs. And by Aftermath in 66, they were doing all originals. It was one of the reasons why Brian Jones got sidelined because as brilliant (laughs) of a musician as he was, he couldn't write songs. But anyway, ironically enough, for a band that got their start as a blues and R&B covers band, it's them, their best, the best cover they ever did is a Motown song. And who knew the Stones could do Motown really, really freaking well. Another band did Motown probably better than them, but that's coming later. But uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg is a classic rock staple on classic rock radio for a reason. It rocks the fuck out. It it takes the temptations and just shoves amphetamines up their asses. It really does. This, 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 and and it's done lovingly. You can hear the love in Mick Jagger's voice as he's singing this track. The Stones feel it. They were on a roll during this time. And this is just rocked out Motown in a way that I, and I love Motown. Man, some of those guys couldn't rock it as much as, as well as the Stones did in here. Number 14, another Motown song, this time by a Motown artist covering another Motown artist, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like a pseudo cover or what would you call it? A, a meta cover. So yeah. this is a Mar- Marvin Gaye's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Uh, story here, uh, and this is another uh, uh, sort of in memoriam uh, moment here. Uh, we said RIP to Gary Rossington of Leonard Skinner earlier. Yeah. Here we have to say RIP to the great Barrett Strong, who yes. along with the Whitfield brothers, uh, was, uh, or Norman Whitfield anyway, uh, was one of the, uh, j- songwriting wonderkins on the Motown factory. I call it a factory cause basically that's what it was. Yeah. And so, uh, so first out of the gate with this song was Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know, who do, who, you know, excuse me, who do that gospel, uh, yeah. in, you know, very fun, uh, vocal harmony, you know, four part harmony version of it. Uh, and it, it's probably more popular at weddings because <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just so up and just so, uh, you know, just sort of like it, it's almost sly or almost sort of jokey about the whole, you know, Hey, you know, uh, you know, it, here's a song about gossip, you know, yeah. but it's almost like making a, making a, what would you call almost like a Broadway review out of it. Right. Mm, right. Right. And, or, you know, for, for black folks and juke joints, uh, in Marvin Gaye's hands, it becomes the most soulful, most honest, most just buttery, uh, most beautiful emotional experience imaginable. Yeah. And it it instantly becomes his song, uh, one of his best vocal performances on tape, uh, one of the best arrangements that was ever featured on one of his records. And, you know, this was at that period where Marvin was starting to kind of push back on Gordy for control. Right. And so this is where he really starts to assert his mastery of uh, the emotional spaces in the music. 
And obviously a couple of years later that, you know, what's going on. I mean, he, he captures it amazingly well, but this is the start of it and kind of has that vibe uh, to it. So it becomes not laid back, but it's, it's mid tempo, but tense and solemn. Right. While still being kind of fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. Switch. For, for all those of you who are interested, Barrett Strong. What did he write? That song, Money. That's what I want. He allegedly, Barry Gordy still claims that he co-wrote it, but I doubt. It. I, I think Strong wrote that on his own. But he did co-write songs with Norman Whitfield, such as I heard it through the grapevine, War. You know that song, War. Dun, dun, dun. What is it good for? He co-wrote yep. that. He co-wrote Just My Imagination by The Temptations. And he also co-wrote Papa Was a Rolling Stone. That guy was a great writer. All right, so we went from a Motown song. Now we're going to go to the other great yep. independent label, independent record label uh, owned by black people and, and African-Americans that catered to the African-American community and eventually uh, crossed over to the white audience. That is Stax. Now, who was in Stax? Well, in my opinion, there were a lot of great artists. Um, you have uh, Isaac Hayes. You have the staple singers were on there, but another person who was there was my favorite all-time male vocalist, Otis Redding. And oh, yeah. in the mid-60s, he wrote a song called Hard to Handle. Really funky, slightly gospel-y, but very soulful, driving song. It was a minor hit. However, in 1990, a, band, a young up-and-coming band from Atlanta called the, the Black Crows, a rock and roll band, on their debut album, Shake Your Moneymaker, covered this song, released it as a single, and it was a monstrous hit, way bigger than Otis Redding's version ever was. And it is a dynamite song, a dynamite example of rocked-up stacks. That's basically yep. what it is. It's, it's rocked-up stacks. And sung wonderfully by one of the most underrated vocalists in rock history in Chris Robinson. He may be a bit of a dickhead in real life, but that guy could sing like a motherfucker. And he yeah. does it on this song. And the Black Crows version of Hard to Handle manages to be both funky, rockin', and soulful and ribald at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, Chris Robinson adds a salaciousness to his his delivery and his vocal performance to the lyrics. He brings he brings the horniness out of the lyrics. Yeah. I live in Houston. I mean, you know, the South, you know, we're we're famous for, you know, uh, getting effed up on cocaine and whiskey on Saturday and going to church on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's these contradictions down here. And so, you know, the Black Crows and so what they do is they take Otis's version, which is an intense love song, yeah, you know, sung to, uh, you know, a, a woman that he wants basically to spend the rest of his life with, I guess yeah. you could say yeah. that. Yeah. And so you take like a, an intense love song and you turn it into a, uh, a sly sex song or, mm. a, you know, like I said, a, an unapologetic sex song. And so that's just a neat trick, you know, cause like, you know, with that swagger, I think that's the right word. That, yeah. you know, Chris Robinson just had a swagger and a confidence to his vocals and yeah. he wasn't doing karaoke. You know, he was, yeah. he was doing it the way you're supposed to do it. I mean, that guy was incredibly talented. Speaking of hell, no, this is not karaoke. No. Number 12 is not just a, we got to put an asterisk next to it because it's a cover, but kind of not really because right. she puts a lot of her own lyrics in it, but it's yeah. also, it's one of the most amazing, blistering totemic album opening songs of all time. Oh, Chris? Yeah. oh yeah. I mean, 
it's it's just unbelievable in the sense that this is Patty Smith uh, doing her take her take on Gloria by uh, Van Morrison, and she does it. She opens it up with this wonderful spoken word piece, really intense, uh, really in your face, really. Uh, Basically, it's you know taking the spirit of the original version by them, which is yeah. Van Morrison's band, and spinning it on its head and saying almost like a she makes the cover a response to the original. Yeah, it's like she forms a dialectic between the Van Morrison uh, spirit of Gloria and her spirit of Gloria. It's mm-hmm. like almost putting it back in Van Morrison's face. Yeah, uh, which I think makes it makes it genius and. And it pre- pretty much introduces uh, the Patti Smith we all know and and wonder about uh, <laughs> uh, to the world, and just yeah. she, I mean, a singular singular artist uh, taking a song and just showing that you can take art and make your own art out of it. It's uh, maybe a very ethereal, very distance, like fourth once removed for a cousin of hip hop. Absolutely, and there's no better. And I, I, I still cannot think of a better opening lyric yep. for an opening song in rock history than Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yep. It's like, you know, we talked at the, we mentioned that I heard it through the grapevine might be a meta cover. No, this is a meta, meta, meta cover. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, you know, for a song like this to have a rejection of Jesus Christ in the beginning of it is like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She, she, she ain't fucking around. Mm, man. Speaking speaking of not fucking around, number eleven is the nope. Clash. Nope, they and, never fucked around. Yep. And their version, their version of "I Fought the Law," originally uh, originally written by a man by the name of Sonny Curtis, who was the guy who replaced Buddy Holly in the Crickets. And they did their version of I Fought the Law, released it in 1960, moderate, kind of, sort of hit. But then what happened years later in 1979, The Clash included their version as the B-side to White Man and Hammersmith Palais. That Their version of I Fought the Law has taken a life of its own, and it has become the definitive rebel rock anthem of all time. There have been various versions. Even Green Day did their version of this song. But yeah. Green Day's version of I Fought the Law is their version of the Clash's version. <laughs> it's not their version of the Cricket's version, believe you me. Yeah. And what stands out about the Clash's version of I Fought the Law is Topper Hedden's powerhouse drum. Oh, yeah. For a band that was a punk rock band, these guys could play their instruments. And Topper yeah. Hedden got his start in various jazz and prog rock. Oh, yeah. Bands before he joined the clash and with the brilliance of topper head as a drummer is that he enhanced the band's music gave them a musicality without being flashy without showing off and that's the key that especially yeah. a lot of young bands and young artists nowadays can't get over they can't get over their own ego they got to have as many chord progressions as possible and as yeah. many time as many tricky time signatures sure. as they can fit into a song no Topperhead and could do all that shit, but he could also tone it down to serve the song. And oh his yeah, drumming his drumming serves the song, and of course you have Joe Strummer. While technically not a great singer, is one of the all-time great rock and roll voices. Oh yeah, and 
the passion that he puts in this. Well, I mean, he put he put passion in every song he ever sung. Yeah, but but especially like you know taking this song, which is almost like again, it's almost what is this the uh, one of the well, this is the opposite of old fifty five. I mean, this is a guy who gets caught. But right. still, and is pissed off about it. <laughs> but 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 Strummer takes it and almost makes it like a protest song. It's almost like you know, it's almost like he's you know, like you know, he was uh, very very virulently against uh, imperialism in Central America, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and so this kind of almost fits into it. It almost as a protest song. You know? Ironically enough, in 1989, when the U.S. military uh, went into Panama, yeah, and they surrounded Manuel Noriega's compound and they tried to get him out the military blasted i fought the law by the clash to put pressure (laughs) on noriega to give himself up so yeah well there 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 you go i mean irony on top of irony on top of irony chris here again we usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on facebook well we're picking up our efforts there Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? you may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. And on we go to the top 10 greatest rock covers of all time. Number 10 is the most recent one on this entire list. Came out in 2016 it is by an R&B soul singer by the name of Charles Bradley, who passed away several years ago. And it's his version of Black Sabbath's Changes. Now, Charles Bradley's kind of obscure for a lot of casual fans. For real music geeks, you know who you should know who he is. Yeah. He was born in 1948, and basically he spent most of his life as a chef and a cook yep. in, in, in various restaurants. But he was he also on the side for his moonlighting gig, he performed on stage as a James Brown impersonator. Yep. And then finally in 2011, um, he got uh, he got a record deal, and finally, like he was like already like in his early 60s, <laughs> and yeah. uh, he he started putting out his own albums, and his third album from 2016, I think it also uh, has this nugget of a track, and it's more than a nugget. It is a powerful, powerful rendition of, of all things, Black Sabbath. Chris? Yeah, it's it, it's incredible. Um, you know, thank, thank the heavens and the earth for the Dap Kings. Yeah. Uh, because they had the gift. They did it with Sharon Jones and they did it with Charles Bradley. They would find these wonderful uh, black soul singers who had been toiling in obscurity. Yeah. And were able to give them a platform to, uh, sure. you know, for the world. And, you know, they had their signature sound. I mean, it's their take on deep soul. So, you know, Black Sabbath fans out there, and uh, you know that on every record, uh, every Black Sabbath record from uh, Paranoid on, uh, they all kind of had the same structure where you would have the absolute bash outs 
Yeah, where, you know, yeah. uh, Bill, Bill Ward showed off. He was the best drummer in the world, practically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tony yeah. Iommi with those down tunings, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and all those, you know, geezer lyrics about, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is really Satan. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all, all that shit. But uh, yeah. but every record would have that stuff. Then they would have these kind of like weird little like uh, almost avant-garde-ish uh, pieces by, I believe, Iommi. Sure. Uh, but then they would have at least one of these sort of lovely, ballady, almost you know, jazzy kind of, uh, kind of out of nowhere or ballads. Uh, and so this is one of those, this was from uh, volume four, which I've been listening to a lot lately, by the way, that's a great record. Uh, but this is the ballad entry on, uh, volume four. And it also is arguably the beginning and the germination of, uh, 1980s Los Angeles period, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. It has that feel to it because it's got this, it, it, it starts off with this piano and, you know, with Ozzy doing his damn best to sing well, which, you know, I mean, the thing about Ozzy is Ozzy's not supposed to sing well. That's why Ozzy is Ozzy, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and it's got the strings and it's just this really just kind of almost cheesy, like you, it's almost like, you know, you would have expected Warrant to do a cover of it. Yeah. Uh, but here comes Charles Bradley. And he finds that soul and emotion and that heartbreak, and he translates it into the most orthodox, wonderful, beautiful, deep soul imaginable. Here we have a James Brown impersonator who shows up on number 10 of yep. the greatest recorded covers and uh, rock covers in history. Doing Black Sabbath of all bands. And and doing Black Sabbath. Really, really neat trick. Uh uh, you know, spe- speaking of which, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, this song is one of those where in anybody's hand, it's a neat trick. And, you know, Artie will disagree with me on this one, but we went with this band because, uh, you know, obviously when they recorded it, uh, they could do no wrong. I mean, they were just like the best band in the world, basically, uh, during this period. But I would almost, I would almost argue for the, the cheesier version of this. So we're talking about Slade, uh, the original by a band in the 70s, uh, Slade, called Come On, Feel the Noise. Uh, most of you out there, when you think of the song Come On, Feel the Noise, you will immediately hear Quiet Riot, right. uh, which was Randy Rhodes' original band. He wasn't in a band by this point, but it was uh, it was kind of an outrageous, fun, kind of almost uh, you know drunk, sloppy cover of Come On, Feel the Noise but brilliantly done and very indicative of early 80s metal. I love it. Yeah. But then in the 90s, uh, when you know B-sides and, and singles releases were still a thing, along came this little band uh, from uh, you know uh, basically the, the wrong side of the tracks in England, and Oasis decides to cover Come On, Feel the Noise. Yes, right, their ver- yeah, their version is the B side to the the to this. Well, remember back in B side means like one song that is the opposite, the flip of a record single. Right. Back yeah. in, and then yeah, in think the of 90- a forty five. Yeah, in the nineties, what we had were uh, because of our CDs, we were had maxi singles. Yeah. So the single and like two or three songs yeah. added to it. This is one of the one of the maxi one of the B sides. To the "Don't Look Back in Anger" maxi single from 1996. No, okay. Yes, and it is Oasis doing "Come On, Feel the Noise," and I think not only is this the best version of this song, it's by fucking far and away the best version. It blows away Quiet Riot's version. 
it, it, it makes it rocks harder. It's better than Slade's version. And the reason it's version, it's a better version is that this, what Oasis do to this song, they pump this song up with sleaze, with swagger, with oddly enough, a really dirty, grungy feel to it. And on top of it, it has a kind of an odd swing on it. And because Oasis, this time they're all about lumbering rock. Yeah. But they're- rock was lumbering rock that you can actually groove to and laid on top of it is liam gallagher's defiant vocals whereas with slade you had naughty holder singing come on feel the noise yeah let's party with quiet riot you know when when they did their version it's just cheesy cartoon hair metal let's all drink and you know be offensive to women at a heavy metal vomit party yeah. When when Liam Gallagher sings it, he is demanding you to believe in rock. He yeah. wants you to believe in rock and roll, that rock and roll can save your soul, it can save your life. And that's what the Oasis get at with this song and their version of Come On, Feel the Noise. They get yeah. to the heart of what the song is really supposed to be about. It's about yep. loving rock and roll, being rock and roll and having rock and roll save your save your soul and that's what liam gallagher's vocals defiant yearning kind kind of he's bellowing it out but it's yearning like i said before it's defiant and he wants to believe and he wants you to believe that rock and roll can bring can raise us it's it, it's kind of, it gives it that it's almost kind of gospel in a way yeah. and it's such a powerful rendition. It, 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 it kind of makes you wonder why they didn't put it on Watch the Story Morning Glory. And so now we move on to, and this is number, where- Number eight. Yeah, this is where we start to get maybe a little controversial, and we want to hear from folks because we're going to engage in our curmudgeonly community. Uh, welcome to our new members, by the way. Uh, we, we've got some velocity there. So thank you, folks, on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, so m- when- most of you out there think to yourself, okay, rock and roll covers, rock and roll covers. What comes to mind? I suspect this song probably comes first, which is Jimi Hendrix's version of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Uh, most lists that I've seen out there of rock covers or just covers in general, uh, this song tends to be, if it's not number one, it's not lower than three. Yeah. Uh, however, it's number eight on our list. Uh, why? Uh, could be a matter of preference. Uh, but also I think it's a matter of, I don't necessarily think this is a great Bob Dylan song to begin <laughs> with. I think it's just below the others because the original, the original, the reason that people love it is that Hendrix takes a, uh, a, a desperate folk song about, you know, Vietnam threats that Dylan yeah. did, right. you know, sort of in his, the beginning of his country rock period there on general John Wesley Harding. Uh, and he takes it and he makes it this sort of uh, mind trip and almost like an exploration of the concept of, of being lost to war. Right. And he translates it through his guitar. And so as, a, as, as an art feat, it's pretty neat. But he's doing it with a not so great song, <laughs> you know, and it, it's, it's kind of like it's not it would have been minor Bob Dylan if it wasn't for Hendrix. Right. But I just think the seven songs ahead of it are better or more transcendent or are more. Uh, worthy of 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 the rock and roll uh, thing, and it's it's conceptual. You know, what do we think of when we think of like you know like rock and roll? We we talk about like you know basically it's in your face taking a cover 
from like, like you know level thirteen all the way to like level thirteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, I don't necessarily think Hendrix does that. I think Hendrix just took a Bob Dylan song that wasn't that great and and made it great. Number seven is Neil Young's version of an old country classic by Don Gibson, a song called Oh Lonesome Me. Yeah, and th- this is where things get real fascinating. I would have put, th- put this at number two or number three personally, but go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, that's pretty high. We have it pretty high enough as it is. Yeah. But Neil Neil Young's version is just really bites into the lyrics. It sinks into the words. Um, and it really just, what it does, it, 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 it just brings... The, I mean, the Don Gibson version is good, but it doesn't really strike the emotion no. that the lyrics warrant. And even though he wrote it, right. even though he wrote it, yeah. and, but Neil Young really, really understands a song, grabs it, brings it out and brings it to the slow as molasses yet yearning version that I don't think yeah. anyone really can. How can you not identify with the lyrics to Oh Lonesome Me? Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 a wonderful like you know barking at the moon. I just got dumped uh, song. Well, yeah. here's the thing: what Neil did is he did Don Gibson a favor because he rescued that song from the Hank Williams idiom. Yeah, because you got to yeah. remember this was in that area in the '50s where basically all everyone on it was Hank Williams, you know Jimmy Rogers a little bit before that. It was the era mm-hmm. of the swinging cowboys, you know, and so everything had that sort of like almost waltzy kind of feel of like this sort of you know, up, down, you know, that, yeah, you know, yeah. it almost had that kind of almost, you, you had to have that kind of twang and that almost right. that kind of structure. And so there were very few people who could do the Hank Williams idiom. Mm. Uh, well, right. Willie Nelson could do it uh, because he was a professional. Uh, it's not the best Willie Nelson stuff, but he, he could do the Hank Williams thing. Mm. Uh, Don Gibson. Yeah. He wrote a hell of a song, but he had, he did it in that idiom. Don, you know, Young rescues it, and boy, does he! Because man, it is a poignant, beautiful, uh, just naked performance. And you know, that was the first album, by the way, that uh, Young decided. You know what? Fuck vocal overdubs. I'm gonna catch. I'm, I, I want to capture the moment, right? Yeah. And right, so that right. that is a raw, non overdub, non fixed vocal. So now we move up to number six. Number and, six. Yeah. Yes. Uh, surprisingly, it's the only song on this list by uh, the birds who mm. uh, became famous off of the good graces of uh, either other people's songs or the Bible uh, <laughs> or, or Bob Dylan period. Yeah. That's what I mean. You know, Dylan songs, but they also, they did, they covered some other artists too, but basically uh, they became more, more, most famous for their, uh, for their Dylan covers. Uh, this one is the finest. And uh Again, it, it's one of those songs. It's you know, if it was in Forrest Gump, yeah, it 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 trumps the original, you know. Yeah, or, I think it was. I mean, it would well, or turn, 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 one of the two, or both, you know. So it's kind of like Forrest Gump music. Uh, so the birds, they just had this lovely, you know, with the the, the twelve string guitar and you know the melodies. You know, you know, any band that David Crosby in, obviously, you knew you were going to get good harmonies. Yeah, and 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 good melodies, and and just this. This really uh, folksy, very poignant, uh, very pointed, very uh, heartfelt, ro- almost romantic version of uh, you know this you know Dylan's. I guess you could say an ode to loneliness or an ode to sort of existential angst. Yeah, uh, and they turn it into well an exercise in loveliness. It's, so it's like right. lovely existential angst. 
yeah. uh, with with twelve string guitars. And so, yeah, Roger McGuinn, he he was he wasn't as far as I know, he didn't write too many songs. He wasn't a songwriter, but man, that could that guy translate and could that guy arrange and just a genius, genius guitarist, you know? Yeah. And really just, very underrated as, as yeah, a guitar Yeah. And, and just the, the melodic line, you know, like the 12 string, when we think of 12, 12 string guitars and rock, this is, there's only, there's two songs we think of first, you know, it's a competition between uh, Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds and uh, the Eagles Hotel California. Yeah. I mean, uh, Robin Hitchcock, the, the British singer songwriter, I said it best right shortly after David Crosby died that yeah. the, those early birds records just have this magical ability to make the listener feel like they're actually levitating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without drugs. Yeah. No, they, they <laughs> and, do. And, and, and this, 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 this was their first single and this really hit the mark uh, in that regard. So no, so this list, I'm telling you, keeps getting better and better and better. And the tricks keep getting neater and neater and neater. So now let's move on to our next trick, which, uh, I'll I'll will t- tell you folks, I fought for no, this as no, no, number five. By the way, it's number five. Yes, it's number five, and yeah. I really fought for this one as number one. This is my favorite uh, cover on this list. I also objectively think it should be number one, uh, and we're talking about the Grateful Dead's cover of "Walk Me Out Dew. in the Morning Dew. Yeah. Uh, and from their debut uh, self-titled uh, record, uh, Arturo, talk to me a li- and talk to our audience a little bit about uh, this song and uh, what makes it powerful. Well, we talked quite a bit about it already yes. in our uh, Grateful Dead uh, a legacy, uh, great, the Grateful yeah. Dead in the studio a legacy part one, which yeah. we covered their '60s stuff, their yeah. 1960s. Definitely uh, go, go check that out, folks. Yeah, yeah, you should listen to that. Really, um, the only thing I want to say the the reason we put it down to number five is that you can. Uh, by the way, this song was originally written by a Canadian folk singer by the name of Bo- uh, Bonnie Dobson. Uh, she wrote this yeah. song. Yes. And then Jerry Garcia found it, found the record in some bargain bin record store. Like, hey, how about this? You know, yeah. and off they went. And the reason I drop it down a little up to number five is because you can argue that the dead did live versions of this song that were better than the, the studio version from 1967. Oh, sure. And, but that's, and but he, that holds true for everything that dead did almost just about. Right. But the, but what makes this one of the things that makes this version live? The one angle I'll take: you can talk about the mood, you can talk about the guitar playing. But what people don't realize is that in his prime, Garcia was a really effective vocalist. Oh yeah, he was a oh, yeah. really really good singer, and he really dug into the words of a song. And it's his vocals on this version of Morning Dew that I think don't get enough credit. People talk of Jerry, the great guitar player, which he is, one of the yeah. greatest guitar players who ever lived. That guy's a legend. He's a virtuoso. But when, you know, before the drugs and age got to him, <laughs> uh, he yeah. was a fantastic vocalist and a really good, not a technically good singer, but a really, really good, how would you say the word I'm looking for? He, he was a very good interpreter of other people's songs, but his voice also had a mood to it that he lent to every song that he sang. He gave it, he gave it a warm, kind of a cozy feeling like you're listening to a good friend talking to you. And that's what Garcia adds to his the the, the Dead's version of Morning Dew, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, you and and that's why I think it's it that I, I would argue for, but let me take the argument further. So you mentioned that the original is uh, uh 
done by uh, a woman named Bonnie Dobson, who was a Canadian singer songwriter. And uh, the most well-known version from Bonnie Dobson actually came out around the same time as, as this record, maybe a year, maybe even a year later, but that's, uh, the, the most well-known Bonnie Dobson version, it had been out. And so, uh, there's that, but, uh, the way she did it was almost like a, like a, a folk, like almost like a folk pop, uh, like glammed or not, but almost like a sheen cinematic. That's what I'm looking mm, for. It was almost right. like score music. And it's a song about a, a couple that survives a nuclear Holocaust. Right. 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 And I know it was featured in a movie uh, about that, uh, but it has this sort of almost like a, a, it sounds almost like a commercial for butter. <laughs> you know, It just has that sort of like just prettiness to it. And who knows, maybe she was doing that on purpose, but it's like a very pretty peppy song about, you know, surviving a nuclear Holocaust. Well, hmm. uh, Garcia takes it and he removes the pretty and the peppy uh, absolutely. And he brings out the starkness and the inherent drama of the song mm. and, you know, really gives it that you know, even more cinematic feel. You know, it gets, it gets the, you know, the big echoes, you know, the dramatic, you know, deep vocals, the, uh, the mournfulness, the, you know, the, um, the weight of the moment, the, the loneliness, all of that. But then you also get touches like Pigpen's organ and, you know, Pigpen, yeah. you know, Ron McKernan, he was the star of that first record, uh, you know, those little organ touches and almost it has a sway to it, but it's confident. And so it's like this but confident, but dramatic and a serious rendition of a otherwise fluffy song about a serious topic. Yeah. Number, Number four. four. Number Go four, ahead. song that made Chris Christopherson a shitload of money. Yes, absolutely. We're talking about Janis Joplin's uh, "Me and Bobby McGee," uh, which you know is is a really kind of, in some ways, almost a depraved uh, narrative. It's it's a very very you know you know country music is not supposed to be happy music. Yeah, and it's not supposed to be necessarily uplifting. It's story music, and mm. this is a really just kind of. Uh, it's dark in, in a way it's almost, you know, it's, you know, kind of bad people kind of, uh, on the road together, not doing not so great things and are just kind of, you know, they're aligned and maybe they don't necessarily want to be, but they have to be. Uh, and so that's, that's the spirit of the song. So, you know, Christofferson, you know, his story is really kind of fascinating. He was, I believe he was like a helicopter pilot in the military. Yeah, he, he was career military, and right. he 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 was writing these songs, and you know, because he he was a he was an Oxford guy too. He was like you know, like top flight, you know, Ivy League Oxford, uh, and uh, he was Army, and again, I think he was a helicopter pilot or mechanic or something like that. And so, songwriting was something that he worked on while he was in the military, mm. and he was able to find his way out of that. And so he just. He's one of the great country singer songwriters of all time, you know, about, you know, yeah, you know, if, if, if it's about lonely alcoholics and like people doing stuff, they might not want to be doing, uh, Chris <laughs> Christopherson was your boy, but if you really wanted to translate it, you put it in the hands of somebody that was, uh, who actually kind of lived the spirit of the song, right. Right. In Janis right. Joplin. 
right. uh, you know, Janis Joplin, you know, the famous hippie chick who, you know, died with a needle in her arm. And so in her hands, uh, there's a, a depth, an emotional depth to it. Uh, she, she translates the uh, frustration, really. I think frustration is the emotion. Uh, you know, there's frustration, there's uh, yearning to be free. You know, obviously the, the famous line, you know, uh, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah. And uh, I think she kind of captures, there's a, a weird hope in that. And so it's a mm-hmm. tale of a dead end, but that is underwritten with hope that Joplin, obviously in those famous vocals at the end, you know, those vocal runs yeah, uh, brings out marvelously and just heavenly. And, you know, Joplin, you know, she's, uh, you know, again, it just makes me sad thinking of her with like the kind of stuff that she could have done after that. Number three, Joe Cocker and his version of the Beatles with a little help from my friends. Now, do I really need to explain this one? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it doesn't take much explanation, but explain yeah, anyway. Mean, yeah. Co- Cocker takes what in the Beatles hand, the, the brilliant original version by the Beatles, which was this, you know, catchy, warm, whimsical uh, song about hippie solidarity and just blows it out into this just cosmic gospel epic mantra about just universal love. And it is a a, a searingly powerful song with vocals by a singer who at at his time was probably the best male vocal, best white male vocalist in rock at the time. It has an incredible guitar solo by Jimmy Page. Yep. Well, shortly before um, he joined, he formed like he, he already had Led yeah. Zeppelin going on, but he was still doing session work. Yeah, and, uh, and remember, this song came out in late 1968, and it yeah. became a big hit uh, yep. early the next year. And then after Cocker's performance at Woodstock, this song got even more popular. Yeah, and it kind of dwarfed the Beatles version, which is saying something. Yeah, it, yeah, it did. By the Beatles is is is, yeah. is an accomplishment, but his version. It's it's pure, full on cosmic gospel, and with it's such an it's such a searingly emotional version. You have to have you have to be a stone cold robot to not be moved by Cocker's version of "With a Little oh, yeah. Help from My Friends." Is it bombastic? Yes, that's the point of gospel. It's supposed yes. to be bombastic, but, but it's a bombastic. <laughs> it was a bombastic song to begin with. Basically, what it was, it was Lennon and McCartney doing uh, bombast, but in the in the context of that concept, you know, as McCartney right. has said, you know, there wasn't a Sergeant Pepper's concept past uh, the title song and with a little help from my friends. Yeah. I mean, that's, exactly. you know, the, the jazz, you know, the anonymous jazz band in the park doing ditties. Right. But, you know, Joe Cocker, like you said, you know, he gets that, that transcendence and which is funny because it's a song about drugs, <laughs> you know, and so I get yeah. high with a little help from my friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so he turns that it's uh, like you said, it's almost like a, a prayer to God. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Done by a guy who, you know, obviously was a, as he says, you know, I, I am, I imbibe drinking drug, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, quite a lot. He said that in an interview or something like that. He, yeah. so he, uh, there, but. I think the main reason, I think a lot of us uh, Gen Xers, uh, what we most associate this song with is the TV show, The Wonder Years. Yeah. You know, which was just indelible. It's a wonderful, one of, one of the best uh, TV shows of that era is at number three. Right. 
Number two is a song, and we're, we're getting near the end here. Number yep. two is a song that arguably should be number one. Yeah. But it's at number two. It is Joan Jett and her, speaking of transcendent, her transcendently yeah. rocking version. And, and to this day, her defining anthem, a song yeah. that is indelibly itched and etched into our uh, pop cultural vernacular. I love rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, no one did iconography quite like Joan Jett back in that yeah. era or ever really. Yeah. Uh, so the, the story of this song, I love rock and roll. Uh, it originates in 1975 mm. uh, and it was done by a British band called the arrows and was written by a guy named Alan Merrill. Uh, the right. original uh, is wonderful. Uh, it's it's a really, really good uh, version. It's basically got the same tempo, obviously the same riff. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got a, it's it's more full. I mean, it's, you know, it's more of a rhythm section. It, it's got more of a rumble uh, to it, but it, it's just a great song. It's like a perfect rock pop song, uh, but it's basically saying it's a song about impressing some, uh, a, a, a member of the opposite sex in a bar. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and and so it's just a, it's a very sort of simple let's enjoy the moment uh you know sort of sing along clap along kind of song uh and it's original now notice how i said sing along clap along kind of song well you don't really get the sing along clap along uh you get the rockiness of it uh, and the fun of the original what joan jett and ricky bird who's the uh, uh the lead guitarist who was in the blackhearts joan jett and the blackhearts uh, what they do and through uh, with, with in collaboration with their producers is they did a, a more minimal, spacier, more detached version of it. Uh, and so shifting the perspective of the song from the male in the bar, you know, kind of, you know, uh, hunting, hunting for the girl turns it into the uh, woman at the bar uh, yearning for the guy. And which yeah. makes it almost, you know, you know, there's in the hands of a guy, it's in the K okay, in the in the hands of a woman. How dare her, you know, she her, she have a sexual appetite, right? Which is a great uh, interpretive trick, considering that Joan Jett is gay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah, she's a woman hitting on a woman at a bar. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. And so, so that, so you have to give it up for that. But like I said, so they take the minimal approach. Uh, there is bass on the song in there somewhere. <laughs> and so the sort of the echo it doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah and so here you have a song by this british punk band that has like the greatest sing-along clap-along chorus imaginable and so okay. what so what did uh, joan jett and her collaborators do they built in the sing-along and the clap-along like <laughs> literally and it you is you know, double down on that yeah and so every time it comes on the radio still i sing along you know, it's, it's just a fun ass song. And sometimes, uh, you know, if I hear it, I mean, rarely around the house, but once in a while, I'll like, you know, pull it up on Spotify, like once a year or something. And yeah. I, and I just kind of clap along to it and uh, yeah. strange, but true. I learned this from the Wikipedia page, uh, for, uh, this song. And, you know, sometimes, you know, Wikipedia gets a bad rap, but it is a great, great resource for finding the original sources. Sure. And is very well managed. Uh, but, she actually did an original version of this. She recorded it originally with uh, Steve Jones of uh, the Sex Pistols and uh, one of the other guys from the Sex Pistols lineups. 
that, that they were the uh, the gu- guitarist, you know, the lead guitarist and you know the drummer basically on uh, on this early recording. So Joan Jett originated this. She first learned of it when she was on tour with the Runaways, and then when she went solo, she did the original demo or her first attempt at the song. She did it with the Sex Pistols. Hmm. So yeah, wow. so that was so, a long time ago. Damn, she, <laughs> she yeah. This came out in 1982. 81. 81. This is 1981. Release, but it became a huge hit in 82. Yeah, thanks to MTV. Uh, yeah. Because you got it came out in eighty one, but it's also got the most one of the arguably, nah, not the most, the most iconic video is Billy Jean probably uh, mm. by Michael Jackson, but it's close. Uh, one of the most iconic videos of all time with you know Joan Jett uh, in in the bar, you know, black and white, you know, her looking all badass, and you know the the whole you know the, basically getting the whole bar to sing along is kind of the gimmick of yeah. the song or of the video. Yeah. And then, of course, a couple of years, I think the next year, uh, Weird Al did his uh, version, I Love Rocky Road, uh, mm, which, which is right. wonderful. I mean, the, the video parody is wonderful. But anyway, so, yeah, you got to give it up for Joan Jett. Uh, a, a neat trick, taking taking a male uh, horn dog Hunter song and turning it into a female horn dog Hunter song and finding the, the, anth- the, the anthemic nature of it that uh, Alan Merrill didn't quite bring out. Yeah, that's what makes it a better cover version. They, they, yeah, they absolutely. It, it, it's absolutely something. Yeah, find something in it that the original songwriter did not find. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you. Like, if you looked in an encyclopedia uh, for a, and I know we've we we've covered like you know the early rock and roll recently, but if you did a uh, encyclopedia entry for rock and roll, yeah, uh, it, it might as well just see uh, say as a cross reference right in front. See, I love rock and roll by Joan Jett. Yeah, exactly. That's how, that's how rock and roll the song is. But yeah. but but ultimately it is not quite as textbook rock and roll as our selection for the number one rock and roll cover song of all time. And even that's though the roll. that's the yes. drum roll. <laughs> yes. And the, even though I advocated for the dead, uh, it was kind of easy to relent on this one because this one is right there. And we do agree, for the purposes of this list, this is the best and number one rock cover of all time. What is it, Arturo? It is The Beatles and their 1963 version of Twist and Shout. Everyone knows this song. Why do you know this song? Because of the fucking Beatles. That's why you know it. No No one knows any of the other versions. This was originally a song... Written in 1961 by Phil Medley and Burt Burns. And well, he, he was credited as Burt Russell. And it was done by the Top Notes. Mm-hmm. They were this obscure little R&B combo. They were on Atlantic Records. They released their version. It really wasn't that much of a hit. It wasn't really very good. It actually didn't chart at all. <laughs> Forget about not that much of a hit. However, yeah. the Isley Brothers got around to this song in 1962, a year later. And they did a much, much better version. Oh, great version. Great much version. better version. They went top 20 in 1962 with their version of it. Lo and behold, a little old band from Liverpool got around to this. Now, here's the thing you have to know about the Be- about the early Beatles. We're talking about early Beatles here. We've got to stress the word early. The Rolling Stones at the time, they were a blues and R&B covers band. Now, the Beatles... When they did their covers, they did some R and B, and they and 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 then but their their strength 
as a covers band wasn't blues or rhythm and blues. Their strength as a covers band was doing Motown type soul yeah. and girl group pop. That's what Lennon and McCartney really, really, really loved. Brill building, uh, and, and, and they excelled at it. I mean, they, they were amazing at it. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. They excelled at that Brill building girl group pop covering that, and they excelled at covering Motown and like black R and B soul, not yep. rhythm and blues R and B. There's a difference. Yes, and the Beatles excelled at covering that. And what you have to understand, early Beatles, there was no white group on the planet that can do black, that kind of black R&B pop like the Beatles could in their early years. And this song is the purest example of that. Yes, the band sounds great. The instrumentation is great. But what really puts this over as the greatest rock and roll cover of all time is the vocals of John Lennon. Yep. John Lennon's vocals and the way he attacks this song it's and manage, manages to be soulful, pleading, angsty, and macho at the same time, which is an impossible task for any singer. But guess what? John Lennon, one of the greatest pure white male vocalists who ever walked the face of the earth, nails it on this song. Now, Paul McCartney had more vocal range, true, but Lennon had more soul. He had a spark that made him bite into the lyrics more than McCartney did. It's like the difference between Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. Technically, Fitzgerald was a better singer. Holiday lived the lyrics of those songs more. And you can say the same thing in the dynamic between McCartney and Lennon as vocalists. Yes, McCartney had more of a range. Technically, he was a better singer. He had better pitch. Lennon had more power. He yeah. had more soul. Absolutely. He lived, he lived and bit into the words more. And his vocal performance on Twist and Shout outdid anything that came before it and everything that came afterward, whether you're white, black, male, female, whatever. Lennon's vocals on Twist and Shout make are so transcendent, so uplifting, powerful, moving. Mm -hmm. The lyrics are actually kind of trite. In yep. coming out of John Lennon's mouth, the lyrics are not trite. Yeah. Like, like twist and shout twisting and shouting become the meaning of life coming yeah, out of the mouth. I was gonna say it's like full on contortion. Uh yeah, it, in it, it, it becomes a spiritual message oh, coming yeah. out of John Lennon's mouth. And the vocals that he did for this for this song, one mm -hmm. take. All done, yep. one take. Yep. He blew his voice out afterward because yeah. back in those days, people did many, many, many retakes. George yeah. Martin wanted to do another more takes of it. And like, yeah. you, you know, he realized I can't, you can't do any better than this. Yeah. Like, I think and the, guy, the guy couldn't sing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's what happened was, is they tried to do a second take and Lennon couldn't get through it yeah, uh, because, because yeah. he had blown himself out. And so, yeah. no, no, this is this song and this performance is a big, big, big part. Uh, you know, and it's kind of an add on, maybe you call this the, uh, uh, the appendix to, uh, yeah. <laughs> or the, uh, or the, uh, the post yeah. uh, note to our last episode on Lennon, uh, a big part of his legacy comes from this vocal performance. It's that yeah. almost rock and roll is religion, you right. know, this sort of worshiping at the altar of this kind of power and this kind of, uh, emotion and this kind of, uh, abandon, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. this 
it's this feeling and it's this depth and it's this uh, rawness. Yeah. And that gets translated. And it kind of became something that defined Lenin. And obviously, as we said, by the mid 70s, he was he was annoyed by his own mythology. (laughs) But it it kind of starts here, you know, as the guy who could just really, you know, like who could who could let's make a spiritual argument for rock and roll. Okay, so this this cultural professor at Harvard. Okay, you go first. Okay, now let's make an argument. Now maybe like Elvis and Tom Parker. Okay, you go next. Okay, well we're too busy doing Viva Las Vegas. So who were we going to get to do the spiritual dissertation on rock and roll? Well, here comes Lennon into the studio, and in one take and in one song captures it. It's this. Uh, there's at once there's a power and a pain and a romanticism, uh, and yeah. a just basically there's a relationship, a visceral relationship that rock and roll artists have to their music. And, you know, Lennon, I mean, he basically, he flips his shit, makes little Richard like seem like he's like a little kid doing Sunday school songs. Right. Yeah. By comparison, it's like he takes it even farther than them guys, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and so it's a, it's just a fascinating, you know, let's, let's just all bring down, and just here's this one rock and roll song with this one performance, and it is just wonderful. So here we are. We've gone through all 30 of these songs, and it's been, wow, that's that was fun, man. That was fun. Folks, uh, we've come to the end of this episode, as we like to remind you. We've talked about it uh, several times throughout this episode. Uh, we have our Facebook uh, curmudgeonly community. Uh, if you're already a member, uh, just remember that you can invite friends of yours to come on in. And even though we're invite only, chances are we'll let everybody in and it'll be uh, good times had by all. Uh, Also, you know, we did something controversial here. We did not anoint all along the Watchtower number one. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And then, yeah, come find us on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a weird, weird place these days. And so we're, you know, we're in the thick of it. Uh, We follow and love Jason Isbell and we follow and hate John Rich. We follow, like, basically, if you're an 80s metal guy and you're on Twitter, your your feed is fucking great. Like, Paul Stanley's feed is fucking great. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so check that out. 